0: Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash podcast. That's patreon.com slash truce podcast. This episode contains discussion of murder and sexual impropriety. Now, we won't get too graphic, but it may not be appropriate for all ages. This is the third part in a series that started with an episode called romanov Stroganov. This episode can stand on its own, but you may want to go back and listen to the past two episodes for context. <sighs> I recently went to my local grocery store to do some recording. So I have done location recording now in Florida, in theme parks, in conferences, at church. I think the most nervous I've been is now walking into my local grocery store and hoping somebody will talk to me. (laughs) I was nervous because the audio equipment I have looks a little intimidating, but I needed to grab some sound for this podcast. So I put my equipment in the cart and headed in cart. Then I went inside and found an apple. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize they made envy apples now. That looks nice. And then a pear. Anjou pears and pear. I don't know what the difference is between pears. Brown or green. And headed off to find the lima beans. I can't find the lima beans. With limited success rice everywhere, small red beans, great northern beans, black beans, lentils. There are no lima beans. (laughs) I've been going to the same grocery store for 10 years. 10 years. And I couldn't find them anywhere. I had to give up on the lima beans. But armed with an apple and a pear, I set off for the other side of the store. We got here in the medicine aisle looking for Tylenol, one bottle of normal, run-of-the-mill Tylenol in a bright red box. The only thing left to do was find somebody I knew so I could ask my questions and get out of there. After about 10 minutes of loitering around the store, I finally found someone to talk to, my coworker, Joe. Uh, So what I've got here, I've got an apple, I've got a pear, and I've got (laughs) Tylenol. Do you have any idea what these have in common, any at all? Apple, pear, and a Tylenol, absolutely no idea. They do have something in common, probably nothing that the average person would ever know about. For a little hint, I couldn't find lima beans, but that would also add in a little something else. Any ideas? Nope, no nope. with lima beans either. Okay. Apples, pears, lima beans, and Tylenol. What do you think they have in common? What if I told you it was cyanide? Well, I wouldn't know if it was or it wasn't. (laughs) What if you got cyanide? That's up to you. Be careful. It it turns out that if metabolized, the seeds of pears and apples and also lima beans have just a little bit of cyanide in them. Not enough to kill you or anything. But then in the 1980s, uh, 1982 actually, Tylenol went through a scare in Chicago where a bunch of bottles were poisoned with cyanide. Cyanide. Like that cyanide the one from old murder movie mysteries and novels of course our food contains very low amounts and for apples and peaches and those things it's mostly contained in the pits and seeds which most of us don't eat cyanide has been used for centuries as a poison before we really knew what it was When carbon and nitrogen are mixed, they become deadly. If ingested, cyanide gets into your blood and then is transported through your body tissues and bonds itself to an enzyme. That's cytochrome oxidase, an enzyme that is important when the body wants to make use of oxygen. With cyanide in the way, it can't. And now the body is starved of oxygen. It's like suffocating, basically. It comes on fast, with nausea, headaches, and vomiting. The victim may pass out and experience respiratory failure, and then die. Which brings us to 1982, when someone in Chicago laced bottles of Tylenol with cyanide. Now, think of that. You're going to the store, you've got a headache, and so you buy some Tylenol. But the bottle includes poison. That's straight-up terrifying. We're used to thinking of things we bring home from the store as safe and guaranteed not to harm us. Suddenly, the Tylenol brand name was in big trouble. Johnson & Johnson recalled all of its medicine at an estimated cost of $100 million. The perpetrator was never discovered. What Johnson & Johnson did was get ahead of the story. Show that they were serious about safety with their products. But they couldn't just put the old-style bottle back on the shelves. They were too easy to mess with. So they launched something that now you and I are very familiar with. We may not even remember a time before this was around. And that led to the invention of what? Can you imagine? Yeah, the the tops that you can't get off. (laughs) That's right, the seal's at the top. Yeah, probably, all right. Yeah, thank you for your help. That's all I needed. This was the beginning of the tamper-proof seal. When they relaunched, Tylenol shipped their bottles with an aluminum top covered with a child-proof lid, which was wrapped in plastic. Seven people were dead. But Tylenol found itself saved at its darkest hour because they were willing to do what it took to face their problem. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause in the culture wars to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Darren and this is Truce. Siberia, a vast cold, largely unpopulated region, most of which belongs to Russia. It's so big that you could fit the entire United States inside of it and still have 1.4 million square miles to spare. Temperatures there get as low as negative 90 degrees Fahrenheit. It was Siberia that birthed a man who would become synonymous with the fall of the Russian Empire. He was purported to be good-looking, with eyes that could almost hypnotize. He had a long, straight beard, hair parted down the middle, pockmarks on his face. They say he was handsome, but looking at pictures of him now, he's more like a wizard without his hat. Menacing, forbidding, and his eyes, those ones that charmed so many, now seem cold like they somehow knew what was going to befall him and his country. His name was Grigori Rasputin. He was a staretz, a monk who wandered the world. He claimed to have healing powers and to talk to God. But he was not like other monks that you've heard of. For starters, he had many sexual partners. Throughout the record of his history, you'll find moment after moment where it's brought up, though some deny that he was very sexually active at all. Some say he was impotent, but the stories, like so many stories, seem to disagree with that theory. That appetite of his, of course, was a big problem. The Bible, which Rasputin knew by heart, is clear on issues of sex. Yet, there was a belief that was popular in his time within certain branches of Christianity. If God is forgiving, if he's willing to overlook our sins, shouldn't we give him every opportunity to do so? To prove his love for us? In other words, if we sin more, God can forgive us more, making God greater and greater. He gets to demonstrate his love over and over, and over, and over. This notion, of course, is easy to debunk. Romans 6-1 is all you need. It spells it out clearly. We shouldn't sin so that grace can increase. But apparently that verse didn't seem to matter to Rasputin because this was an age that sought authenticity, like real experiences, personal contact with the divine and the departed. Through mystics and seances, healers and hucksters, people sought God or understanding or just a thrill through experiences with the occult. And Rasputin embodied all of that. He roamed the country purportedly healing people as he went and flashing those eyes. Maybe you'll recall from our last episode that during this time, the Romanovs, the final dynasty of the Russian Empire, was involved with a man named Philippe. He was a Frenchman who claimed to be a doctor, though he really wasn't a doctor. He became a confidant of the Tsar and the Tsarina, but then was sent away in disgrace. Before he left, he told them, sometime you will have another friend like me who will speak to you of God. And they took him seriously and waited for Philippe's second coming. They even followed his last advice that if they wanted to have a son, an heir to their throne, they should canonize an obscure elder against the wishes of the church and bathe in the water of a particular spring. They followed his orders like you might follow a recipe, step by step. And on July 30th, 1904, The Tsarina Alexandra gave birth to their first and only son, Alexei. But when they cut the umbilical cord, the doctors struggled to stop the bleeding. Alexei, in keeping with his family heritage, was a hemophiliac. His blood lacked the ability to clot, meaning any injury, like no matter how minor, could be fatal. The dynasty, already seen as weak, had produced a child who was weak, an heir who could not bleed without risking his life. They needed a miracle from somewhere. So the stage was set. They sought authenticity, which they could not find in the nobility with all their pomp and criticism. They had reason to resist the established church. After all, it fought them on the canonization, which they believed had brought about their cherished son. So they waited. Philippe had promised an advisor, a new confidant, a friend, and their son needed a miracle worker who could stop the bleeding. So when they were introduced to Grigori Rasputin, a peasant from Siberia who had a personal connection to the divine... It seemed too good to be true. Now, historians take great pains to stress that Rasputin's role in the family was probably not that of a healer, but more of a counselor. They say he didn't heal the boy so much as calm him, which slowed down his heart rate and thus the flow of blood. He also calmed the Tsarina, who was nervous and near the end heavily drugged. Now, whether he was just a calming influence or really was a faith healer, he entered into their lives in November of 1905 at a party. The Romanovs met the Stretts again in the next October when he came to the Winter Palace to present them with an icon. He blessed them, the daughters, and little Alexei. Bless you, daughters of God. Bless you, son of God. The Romanovs liked his forthright ways, his peasant manners. Again, he was authentic. By 1914, Rasputin was officially promoted to the role of advisor. Not just about their daily lives, but about war, politics, hiring decisions. He, a peasant from Siberia of all places, had the ear of the Tsar and his wife. Rasputin, boasted of his power, even showing off the letters he received from the Tsarina. All while using his influence to seduce women, even to the point of raping them. The Romanovs were told by friends, family, counselors, and others that Rasputin was simply no good. At least one president of the Duma, the legislative body, spoke of irresponsible influences at court. Alexandra and Tsar Nicholas didn't think much of Rasputin's bad reputation. After all, Jesus was hated in his time, why shouldn't a man of God be treated the same? The secret police followed Rasputin and found that he was participating in group activities in bathhouses. Rasputin countered by saying that he was going there to preach. Others insisted he caroused with groups of bathers. Rasputin was banned from Petersburg by the Prime Minister, but Zara Nicholas and Alexandra saw him anyway the Tsarina turned against anyone who talked poorly of their friend. Her many letters to Rasputin were published for all to see, without their permission. And the public was shocked, outraged. Who was this peasant tickling the ear of the Tsar? What was the nature of his relationship with the Tsarina? How much influence did this one man who was not elected, not even part of the royal family, have? Still,
1: Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Cat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
0: Then Alexei, the little heir to the throne, struck his groin while trying to get into a boat. The child hemorrhaged in his upper thigh and in his stomach. The outlook was bleak the heir to the throne of the Russian Empire was going to die from what would have been a bruise for most children. On September 8, 1912, the little boy was given his last rites, a sign that the church believed the boy was passing away. Now, Rasputin wasn't there. He was back home with his wife and children in Siberia. Alexandra, desperate to help her son, dashed off a telegram pleading for Rasputin to do something. To save her little boy. He responded that Alexei would not die. There was that calming influence again. The boy would not die. And within two days, the swelling subsided. Rasputin, the sex-obsessed rapist monk who had the ear of the royal family, was now untouchable. Pause there for a moment. It's easy to hear about this Rasputin guy and dismiss him as a historic anomaly. But that's far from the case. We humans are enchanted by supposed faith healers, by the whisper of the occult. We are far more prone to listen to a gifted speaker, a person of charm, than we are to read the Bible for ourselves. I mean, the Bible clearly says that we can know a person by their fruit. Yet, When we see deception and debauchery in a quote-unquote holy person, we sometimes write it off. Maybe the ends justify the means in our calculations. So we build walls around the Rasputins in our lives, in our churches, and in our pulpits to protect them. Because we're hungry for the ill-gotten gains they provide. But this kind of ignorance only lasts so long. Our protective fortresses will fall. With a gunshot, World War I had begun. The great powers of the globe turned against each other. The Germans and the Ottomans were on the move. In Russia, everything German fell under suspicion. Alexandra was German. And people started to whisper, Could Alexandra the German Tsarina? be steering the country to destruction to benefit her home country? Was she secretly in the pockets of the Germans? Then there was Nikolasha, the popular head of the military. He despised Rasputin and his influence. So Rasputin undermined Nikolasha. He said that this military leader, beloved by the common people, was undercutting the throne. Shouldn't maybe the Tsar be the most beloved person in the country? Perhaps Tsar Nicholas himself should take command of the military. Now remember who Rasputin was. He'd been caught by police in a bar where he was involved in questionable sexual exploits and bragged about his physical relationship with the Tsarina herself. Nikolasha, the military leader, was incensed. Who was this evil monk? But he himself was not doing so hot. He lost battles and amassed defeats. The people loved Nikolasha more every day. Alexandra, though, did not forget Nikolasha's shortcomings on the battlefield. She blamed them on his rejection of Rasputin. So Tsar Nicholas took control of the armed forces in August of 1915. Leaving Alexandria in charge on the home front. Her relationship with the government was complex, but if we were to simplify it, we might be tempted to say that she urged her husband to fire anybody who badmouthed their special friend. The Romanovs, ever suspicious of anyone around them, sacked person after person, including many of those who might question Rasputin. And who was left to fill the vacancies to do the hiring? the Zarina, her friend Anna, and Rasputin himself, who was apparently not against collecting envelopes of cash in exchange for a job. He was sex-obsessed, a rapist who frequently forced women to kiss him. He took bribes, drank heavily, traded in mysticism, and passed it off as Christianity. People were suspicious. How could this man of questionable morals have so much influence in their country? The salons of the day were abuzz with one topic, the necessary death of Grigory Rasputin. The rumors of impending murder were so prevalent that Rasputin's own daughters heard whispers. They hid his boots, hoping their father would not venture out that fateful night. But he had dinner with an important man at the decadent home of Prince Yusupov. The dinner was elegant. A lovely spread, complete with cream cakes and wine. The conspirators, many of whom hid in another room, sprinkled the cream cakes and wine with cyanide in hopes of a quiet, bloodless death for their dinner guest. That Rasputin's body would just run out of oxygen. Simple. Neat. The conspirators hid before the Sturettes arrived, leaving Yusupov alone with him. Some reports say that Rasputin ate the cakes with the cyanide sprinkles, while others say he didn't. Autopsies later found that there was no trace of poison in his system. Legend had it that the monk had eaten the cakes, but was so evil that the poison simply didn't work. Or it's possible that the wine neutralized the poison. Those must have been tense moments for Yusupov. Yankee Doodle played happily on the gramophone, a sharp contrast to the murderous feelings in his stomach. He plied the Sturettes with wine and bakery, waiting for his eyes to widen, for him to stumble, for him to fall into his chair. But that never happened. Rasputin even found the energy to sing and play the guitar. Something was horribly wrong. Plan A had failed he called out Rasputin's name, saying, Grigory Yefimovich, you had better look at the crucifix and say a prayer. The bullet struck Rasputin in the stomach and his liver before exiting through his back, a wound that would have killed the man within 20 minutes. The clock had started ticking. Rasputin would soon be dead. The other conspirators filed into the room. The monk lunged at his assassin, and fell, only to rise. Somehow, I can't imagine how he stumbled into the yard yelling, yelling that he would tell the Tsarina everything. This public display in the yard was bad for the conspirators. This was supposed to happen inside, away from prying eyes. The police station was not far. Surely they would be on their way soon. So they shot Rasputin again, this time in the lower right back. Alone, that bullet would have killed him in 20 minutes. Combined with his other wounds, it surely shortened the window considerably. Yet, he held onto life, panting, grunting, gasping for air. I will tell the Tsarina she must know the treachery. Until finally, one of the conspirators shot him in the forehead. They wrapped the body in a curtain and dumped it in a hole in an icy body of water. A place that would buy them some time to escape, but where it would almost certainly be found. So the world would know they had killed the evil man who'd ruined their country. Perhaps they'd killed the devil himself. I want to take you back to the idea of poison, to cyanide, and why we're talking about this gruesome night. The curious thing about poison is it doesn't take much to do its work. A tiny bit of cyanide can bring down even the greatest of people. Just a bit of poison and it's over. Let's compare and contrast for a moment. When Tylenol found itself face to face with a major scandal, what did they do? They went public. They pulled the bottles from the shelves and improved their product with the tamper-proof seal, something that was copied by company after company. It became a mark of quality and safety. They went from being the object of scandal to setting the industry standard. They became a case that is literally studied in business schools for exactly what to do if your company is tangled in something terrible. When the Romanovs faced scandal, what did they do? They melted down, became insular, and changed the face of the world for the worst. They ushered in an era of terror, a reign of fear, communism, and the USSR. Because they refused to accept the truth and make changes. Now, here's the thing about Rasputin. According to the experts I spoke with, he was kind of overrated but he makes a good story, a nice scapegoat. The legend is easy to latch onto. But what really sank the Russian Empire was far more complex than just the poison of Rasputin. If the Tsar had acquiesced to public demands early on and set up a representative government, the world would be a different place. The Romanovs might still be around if the Russians hadn't done so poorly in the Russo-Japanese War, only to enter World War I soon after, thus exhausting their military. If they hadn't assumed that their illustrious history as a royal family would save them, maybe things would have turned out differently. No, Rasputin is more of a symptom of a greater problem than the cause. The Romanovs' high society dabbled with a little bit of poison. Just a little bit. Not enough to kill them on its own, but enough to do damage. You might get away with it for a while, but mix enough poisons together, ignore your problem instead of facing it like Tylenol did, and death is not far behind. So went Russia. And if we don't confront the issues in our own communities, so will go our churches. I should say, before we wrap things up too neatly, that Johnson & Johnson has been involved in some serious lawsuits lately. First of all, for their role in the opioid crisis in the United States, and also for links between their talcum powder and ovarian cancer. And So while they dealt well with the whole cyanide in the bottle thing in Chicago back in 1982, maybe they haven't done so well since. So take this whole thing with a grain of salt. Special thanks to my friend Joe for his help at the grocery store. And thanks to Mikhail Kozenkov, a.k.a. the podcast sound fixer, for doing the Russian voices. And he actually is Russian, so that was pretty authentic. My research for this episode came from several books, including The Romanovs by Simon Sebag Montefiore, Rasputin by Douglas Smith, and The Russian Revolution by Sean McMeekin. You can find links to those books and other resources on our website at trucepodcast.com. There, you'll also find information about my book, Cradle Robber, and my movies, Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls, which are now available on Amazon and Pure Flix. Truce is a listener-supported show in many ways. First of all, I rely on you to help in telling your friends about the show. Please share it on social media, talk it up at church or at work, and keep it in your prayers we're also reliant on your donations. For just $3 a month, you can get access to our bonus content posted at patreon.com and you'll get the feeling that you're really a part of this thing. We're trying to do something pretty unique, making Christian podcasts that are compelling, have high production values and make us rethink our world. You can donate on the website at trucepodcast.com or by looking us up on Patreon. Also, I'm excited to say that my friend Andy Huff, who designed the logo for this show, has a new novel out called A Cross to Kill. He made the logo, so I'm plugging his book. And so Andy, now we're even. We're just at the beginning of a long series that examines how the rise of communism impacted the Christian church. It affected how we see our role in business, in government, and really every facet of modern life. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app and you'll get every new episode as it's released. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Terren,
1: and this is Truce.